Thanks, Libby. Those were fantastic announcements. That's exactly how I feel. Um, I'm Tim. If you're new in the last eight weeks, uh, I work here. You might not know that I work here if you're new with us. Um, that's enough about that. It's good to see you guys. Open your Bible. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, so if you've got that with you, go ahead and pull it out. Uh, hard copy, you've got it digitally. That's either one is, is fantastic. Um, as we get into this, I kind of want to do like a, a big picture sort of zoom out. It's been since before my sabbatical that we just kind of reset where are we, what's happening in the gospel of Luke. Um, so let's do that together. Luke is one of four uh, gospel accounts in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each one of those is an explanation of Jesus Christ, his life, and the good news of what he came to do. And it's important to note that each one of those gospel accounts, they're unified uh, stories, accounts of this man's life. They're not like gatherings of like Aesop's fables or something like that, where we pull together some good stories that have like a moral point, you read it, and then you walk away from the stories with an encouragement for how you can live a better life. The gospel accounts are a depiction of the life of Jesus Christ, a real account of a real man who did real work on the cross that really changes eternity for real people. That's what each one of the four gospel accounts is. It's a different lens and look at that man's life. Real person, real work, that really changes eternity for real people. Luke specifically writes his gospel to one person, a man named Theophilus. All the words that you see in the gospel of Luke were one man, Luke, his attempt to help another man know with certainty the things that he had heard about Jesus Christ. And now 2,000 years later-ish, we have the Bible with the gospel of Luke in it, and its intent is to help us do the exact same thing. Know with certainty who this man Jesus Christ is, what he did, and why that matters. You can take the gospel of Luke and sort of break it into four big parts, four acts, if you will. The first act is from the very beginning, 1-1, through like the middle of chapter 4, and that's just the presentation of Jesus. Who is this man? Why has he come? How did he come into the world? Why does that matter? And then in the middle of chapter 4 through kind of the late half of chapter 9 is all of Jesus' early ministry. It takes place in an area known as Galilee, which is in the north of Israel. It contains a lot of Jesus's miracles and healings and those sorts of things, though there are more of those later, but a lot of them happen up there in the north in Galilee. And at the end of chapter 9, there's a statement that transitions us to the third act of the gospel of Luke. And that statement is that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. He's going to make this long journey from north in Galilee down to Jerusalem. And that whole account from Late in chapter 9 to the very middle of chapter 19 is this long travel narrative. It's the preparation of Jesus. He's preparing for what's going to happen in Jerusalem and on the cross, and he's also preparing his disciples for what it's going to mean when that happens in Jerusalem, and he's no longer there. What does following him look like when he's not present 
anymore. That's happening during this travel narrative. And then from the middle of 19 through the end of the Gospel of Luke is the passion of Jesus. His death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, into the uh, book of Acts, his ascension, and his commissioning of the disciples to go and to share this good news about who he is. That's sort of big picture. We're in Luke chapter 15, which is right in the middle of that travel narrative. And so I want to do some like near sort of context. Where are we? So if you've got the Bible open there, either swipe a couple times to get back to chapter 13 or flip a couple pages, depending on how big your font is. Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He's traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And along the way, he's preparing himself for the cross. He's preparing his disciples for what it's going to mean when he's no longer on the earth. And the closer they get to Jerusalem, the more urgent Jesus becomes, which makes sense because Jesus knows what awaits him when he arrives in this city. And so if you just look, starting in chapter 13, and sort of scan with me where we've been on Sunday mornings in the last couple of months. Jesus looks at this large crowd of people and he says, you need to either repent or you're gonna perish. If that's not urgent, I don't know what is. He teaches about this narrow way into the kingdom of God that he's the only means by which you enter into that kingdom. He teaches about humility. He's ultimately going to be sort of the, not sort of, he's ultimately going to be the the perfect picture of that. He's calling his followers into a life that models that sort of humility. And he's challenging the Pharisees that the only way they're going to get over their false religious ideas of who God is and what it's like to relate to him is if they humble themselves. Those teachings on humility are not only challenging for the follower of Jesus, they were a direct confrontation to those who were opposed to Jesus. Jesus laments over Jerusalem, not the city of Jerusalem, but the people that live there. And then at the end of chapter 14, he gives a lengthy description of the cost associated with the reality of following him. And then we get to Luke chapter 15. All along the way there, particularly in those last couple of chapters, as Jesus is doing a lot of teaching. To borrow something that Scott Hickox said a couple of weeks ago from up here, you get this picture of the longing of the heart of God to draw people to himself. Jesus is trying to draw the disciples in to closer relationship with him. He's trying to draw the masses into relationship with him for the first time. And he's trying to draw the Pharisees even, his opponents, away from their idolatrous, false legalistic religion into the truth of relationship with him and access to the kingdom of God. And in the middle of that confrontation, particularly with the Pharisees, come three parables. One of which, the last, the prodigal son, is one of sort of the Bible's greatest hits, one of its most memorable moments. And it's in relation to those very memorable accounts that I say, these are not like Aesop's fables. These aren't collections of things that happened in the life of this guy so that you can just go and live a moral life. This parable happens in the context of Jesus' larger ministry. It serves a distinct purpose. He's teaching all three of these for a very specific reason. And that reason is to teach something to us about what it means to be lost, something about who he is and what it means for God to save. That's why Jesus gives these parables. And that's what we're going to see over the course of this morning. I'm gonna read all of chapter 15. 
It's a longer passage than we would normally read. It's going to take me a few minutes. So if you've got a Bible with you on your phone or in front of you, I would encourage you to follow along because if you don't follow along, this is going to turn into like a Charlie Brown womp, 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 womp sort of situation. And then you'll key back in a few minutes later. It, it really is helpful to sort of watch and follow as I read. This is what Luke 15 says. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need repentance. Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. He also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you. And I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, yes? We're going to work with this passage over the next two weeks. This week, we're going to take the whole thing, all three parables, and we're going to sort of do this from the divine side, if you will. What do we see about who God is as illustrated by these three parables? Next week, we're going to take just the parable of the prodigal son, and we're going to look at it from the sort of human side. 
What do we see on the human end of these interactions? The goal this week is to take all three parables and pull together the common threads so that we can see the one big point that Jesus is trying to make with these three illustrations. Those common threads are that there's something lost in each one. There's something found in each one. There's a reason that thing is found and there's a response to it being found. So we're we're gonna look at those four things in all three parables. Before we jump in to the specifics, it's helpful to just give ourselves some basic reminders about what parables are and what purpose they served within Jesus's teaching ministry. And actually the first couple of verses of chapter 15 help us with this. When Luke wrote all of this, there were no chapters and there were no verses. He wrote one book-like account. So look at the end of chapter 14. Verse 34, as Jesus is ending this discussion about the cost of following him, he says, now salt is good, but if it should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Then look at the start of chapter 15, verse one. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. Oftentimes, our Bibles with their section breaks do us a little bit of a disservice because our natural way of reading would be to read to the end of chapter 14 and then stop. And then maybe the next morning or a couple days later or like on Sundays, a week later, pick back up after the break. Luke does something intentional there. Jesus gives all this teaching that's pretty hard to hear and yet it appeals to a particular group. Anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Very next verse, tax collectors and sinners come to Jesus. Why? to listen. There's something they've heard about the difficulty and the cost of following Jesus that's alluring to them. And they want to hear more of it. Despite the fact that they're sort of despised and deplorable within their current cultural context, they hear Jesus teach and they think to themselves, give me more of that. Look at verse two. The Pharisees and scribes were complaining Tax collectors and sinners approaching to listen. Pharisees and scribes, the religious and the respectable people are complaining, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus gives these difficult teachings about the cost associated with following him. It's appealing to some people. It breeds contempt in some others. So much so that they see the crowd that's approaching to listen to Jesus and they can't even bring themselves to use his name. They've been monitoring Jesus's ministry for a long time. And when they see this crowd that's surrounding Jesus, they're like, this guy welcomes tax collectors and sinners. Yuck, how disgusting. It's not the first time that they've said that. If you go all the way back to the beginning of Jesus's ministry in Galilee, back in Luke chapter five, Jesus goes to have dinner at a tax collector's house. That tax collector invites all of his tax collecting and sinning friends and they have dinner in the courtyard area that's like open in these homes from the street visible into that courtyard, the Pharisees and the scribes see who Jesus is eating with. And they look at their, Jesus's disciples and they say, why does he do that? And the disciples are like, dude, I don't know. We've been on the job for like eight days. We're not really sure what's going on here. Why don't you ask him? Jesus then delivers another one of scripture's greatest hits. He looks at the Pharisees and the scribes and he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And 
a very similar context now. In response to the same sort of question, Jesus is going to give in illustrative form a parable that explains what that statement means. What does it mean that the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do? That he's not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus gives three parables in no teaching. Nothing direct, it all comes in illustration form. And that illustration has one big point. That's what we're doing with parables. One point about the kingdom of God. What's the main point that Jesus is illustrating? That's what we ought to always ask ourselves when we come to a parable. And so, is there something common within these that help us see the main point? Well, we already said there are some commonalities. In each parable, there's something lost. A sheep, a coin, a younger son. In each parable then, commonality number two, there's something that does the finding. A shepherd, a woman, a father. Those jump off the page. They're what's the kind of most common in our minds. But there's a third common element in each one of these. And that's that each time the lost thing is found, they're celebrating. Look at verses six and seven. Shepherd goes, retrieves the sheep, carries it home. Verses six and seven, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. And then Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 people who don't need repentance. In the second parable, woman finds the coin, goes outside to her neighbors and says, rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin, or the silver coin I lost. Jesus then adds, I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. In the third parable, Verses 22 to 24, son comes home. He's in the middle of his rehearsed, pre-prepared apology. He doesn't even get to finish it because the father looks back over his shoulder, doesn't address the son, yells to his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Notice that in the first two parables, it's actually the celebration that serves as the hinge point where Jesus goes from illustration to making his point. Person brings the sheep back, shepherd brings the sheep back, says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Then Jesus says, in the same way, there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Woman finds the coin, goes to her neighbors, rejoice with me, I found the silver coin I lost. Jesus then uses that as the hinge to say, in the same way, there's rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. It's the celebration that's the point that Jesus is trying to drive home. And so what's the big point of all three parables? Every word in this statement matters a lot. Heaven rejoices when God graciously saves sinners. What is Jesus trying to drive home to this crowd of longing tax collectors and sinners as well as skeptical, contemptuous Pharisees and scribes that heaven rejoices when God graciously saves sinners? When the lost are found, heaven erupts into praise. When the wanderer comes home, the angels burst into applause. When God welcomes his children back 
home to him, glory echoes through the banquet halls of heaven. That is the main point. The sound that happens at a Chiefs game when Patrick Mahomes comes running out of the tunnel, it's like that times a million when God graciously saves sinners. That praise is not to an individual. It is to a good, seeking, saving, grace-giving, glorious God. And it fills heaven. That is the big point in Luke chapter 15. Now we can take some more away from this, but that's the big thing to keep in mind. Within these three parables, though, we learn something about God and something about us. Something about what it means to be lost and something about what it means to be found. And I want to invite you over the next few minutes to do one of two things. The first one is to think about and remember and kind of hold in your mind the day or the time or the season, the moment when you were saved. We think about, we tend to think about that as like one big sort of sweeping moment. And for some people that could be your testimony. For others, it happens over a season of life. I want you to consider that and kind of hold it in your mind over the next few minutes. The other option is this. If you're trying to pull that season or that moment, that day into your mind and you realize it's not there, I want to invite you to courageously and also vulnerably consider for yourself where you might be right now. We're going to walk through these three parables, draw out the reality of what being lost looks like, as well as the truth of what it means to be found by God. And there's going to be nothing new or nothing novel this morning. I'm not going to like drop some knowledge nugget that you think to yourself, whoa, I've never considered that before out of these parables. Nothing new. In fact, if you've been coming to LCF for a long time, the illustrations are even ones I've used before. That's on purpose. The reason for that is because the most important thing we do when we gather together on Sundays as a church is that we remember, we rehearse, and we rejoice in the gospel. Yes, we open the Bible and we want clarity from it. We want to learn from it. But the reason we want that clarity and we want that learning is so that we can remember, rehearse, and rejoice in the gospel. Yes, we sing songs and we want that to be engaging. We want your hearts to be able to connect to that so that you can remember, rehearse, and rejoice in the gospel. Yes, we hope that our interactions are uh, encouraging and uplifting, that there's ministry among the fellowship of believers. But the reason for that is because when the church functions according to its divinely inspired plan, those very interactions help us to remember, rehearse, and rejoice in the gospel. That's the main reason we're together. And that's all I want us to do over the next few minutes. So look with me at the first parable. There's more than one way to be lost. The first parable gives us one of those ways. And that way is that sometimes we're lost and we know it. Verse three. So he told them this parable. What man among you has a hundred sheep and loses, or who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it. Most of the parable focuses on the shepherd here, rightfully so. It's worthwhile to spend a little bit of time thinking about the sheep. Sheep are really dumb. That's why they need a shepherd. At some point in this one sheep's life, it bent down to start munching on some grass, picked its head up, and all 99 of its buddies were gone. Not only were the other 99 sheep gone, 
so is the shepherd. And I don't know a ton about the thought processes of sheep, but I know enough to know that that sheep probably thought to itself, this seems bad. It's lost. It knows it's lost. That sheep only has two options. Option number one is that it dies there in the field, either because it gets stuck somewhere, it gets attacked by a wolf, or it starves, or dehydrates. That's option number one. And if it dies, it's going to die alone, apart from the flock, and apart from the shepherd. Option number two is not some big, majestic, homeward-bound sort of journey whereby the sheep goes cross-country in order to be joyously reunited with its shepherd and its flock family. Option number two is that the shepherd comes and saves. That's it. Those are the only two prospects for the sheep in this situation. There's only one way for the sheep to be saved, and that's the shepherd. When I was uh, working on this, I gave my parents a phone call because the following story that I'm about to share, uh, there's some disagreement about some of the details, which I'll get to. It matters in how I come off looking in the story. Um, I contend that I was nine years old. My mom says that I was more like 13, and that makes a big difference. But we were in Disney World, and we had been down a number of times before as a family, and we typically stayed in these hotels that are like in the Disney bubble on their property where you go to one of the parks, and all you've got to do is walk out of the park and go to the little bus stop that's got your hotel's name on it, and it takes you right to your hotel. And so the standing rule in our family was that if we ever got separated and uh, we couldn't find one another, you just go to the bus, go back to the hotel, and we'll reconvene at the hotel. Parents knew that. My sister and I knew that. And so one night, we were at Disney uh, Hollywood Studios, and my parents and my sister were going to go watch this show. I was way too cool for that show. No chance I was going to go watch that. I was going to go and ride the Tower of Terror as many times as I could before the park closed. And the plan was that we were going to meet at a very particular spot when their show ended, and we would reconnect leave as the park was closing and go back to the hotel. Well, we failed to keep, to keep in mind the fact that that show theater holds like 7,000 people or something like that. And so there was going to be a large mass of humanity as well as everyone else headed to the park exit at the place where we said we were going to meet. So I'm there at the time that I'm supposed to be there and I see the stream of people start coming out of this show and I'm, I'm watching as everybody passes by and I do not at any point see my mom, my dad, or my sister. And so I did exactly what I was supposed to do. I sat down on the curb and I cried. <laughs> That's a sizable difference for a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old. It's also a sizable difference if the nine or 13-year-old should have definitely remembered what was supposed to happen if we got separated. But I knew I was lost. And it felt utterly hopeless. Like the park is getting more and more empty. I'm not seeing my parents. I sit down. I'm, I'm literally just weeping on the curb there in the middle of Disney's Hollywood Studios because I'm thinking to myself, I have only one hope here. Dad comes back and finds me. And now we're going to diverge from the parable a little bit and don't, you should not think less of my parents because there was a plan. They got on the bus and went back to the hotel, right? Because that's definitely where Tim is going to be. A park employee walked over to, I contend, very small frightened nine-year-old me and said, can I help you? Are you okay? 
And because I'm a human and we have cell phone technology, unlike sheep, I said, I need to call my parents, I think. And so the worker takes me to where there's a phone. We call my parents' cell phone and they answer and they say, we're at the hotel. Where are you, child? And I said, on my way to the hotel, just like we planned. I knew I was lost. And it felt like there was no hope for being found unless dad came back and found me or said, ding dong, remember the plan. And so I sat there and I cried because sometimes we're lost and we know we're lost. In the context of the parable here, it's a gracious act for God to save in that moment. Look at the shepherd for a minute. Leaves the 99 safe in a field, likely with some other shepherds, goes out, seeks until he finds this one sheep, and then picks that sheep up, puts it on his shoulders, carries it back to the rest of the flock or to home or wherever it is, and then calls everyone together and says, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. And if that's not a picture of life with Jesus, I don't know what is. You're lost and destitute and hopeless and you know that there's only one thing that can save you and Jesus comes to you, saves you, picks you up, carries you through the rest of life and then throws a daggum party in heaven to celebrate the fact that you're home. Amen? That is the beauty of the gospel. But that's not the only way to be lost. Look at the second parable. Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it. Sometimes we're lost and we have no idea. Sheep, little brain. Coin, no brain. That coin's underneath the bed, hidden away underneath some pots and pans in the kitchen area or whatever. It has no clue that it's lost. It's just doing its coin thing wherever it happened to be set down. You know who knows the coin is lost? Its owner. And when an owner loses something valuable, they search until they find it. And this is where if you try to over-allegorize every detail of a parable, you can get yourself in a little bit of trouble. The point is not that God is uncertain where his children are and he needs to upend everything in order to hopefully locate them. The point is that he will stop at nothing to gather what's his and take it with him. Jesus prays as much in the garden before his crucifixion. In John chapter 17, there's the recording of that prayer. In the middle of that, in verse 12, Jesus says, while I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them has been lost. Jesus is getting to heaven with every single one of his knowingly lost sheep or his unknowingly lost coins. There's only one hope for the coin to be found in this parable and that is the woman, the owner. Just before my sophomore year of high school, I was invited to an event here at LCF. It would have been like very early September before school started. And it was this outreach event. There was a bunch of fun stuff outside and free food and all of that. 
And I had a friend who had been inviting me to come to stuff at church for a very long time, faithfully, since we were in like middle school. And I had turned him down every single time. Well, something about this particular invitation sounded appealing. It was the fact that there was a girl coming that I had a crush on. That was the appealing thing. I said I would come. And so I came to the event and we did all the outside fun, free stuff. Um, Had a great time. We were here for a couple of hours. And then they brought everybody into the sanctuary because the youth pastor was going to give a sermon. And I sat right over here. There were no chairs in here. I sat on the ground in the middle of a giant coffee stain that was there for decades, never got cleaned. I sat over there and I heard the gospel for the very first time. I heard about sin for the very first time. I'd never heard the word before. I heard about Jesus for the very first time. I had only ever used his name as a cuss word. And it was in that moment that God graciously both alerted and saved. Because if you would have asked me that morning when I got up before that event or when I came in here, I would have told you very confidently, I'm moral. I've got great parents. I don't commit any of, any of like the big bad things that kids my age do. I'm living a good life. I'm definitely going to heaven if heaven is a place. And I sat over there in that coffee stain and all in one moment, God thumped me on the head and said, ding dong, you're lost and good news, I'm here to find. I had to be alerted to the fact that I was lost so that I could be saved. It is a gracious act of God to both alert and save. Look at the woman. She knows the coin is missing and she's determined to find it. She won't stop until she does. And when she does, she throws a party. And whether you know you're lost or not, whether you knew you were lost or not when you were saved, that is a picture of life with Jesus. There's still one more way to be lost. Look at the third parable. We're mostly gonna look at just the first half of that third parable. Because sometimes we're lost and we got there on purpose. Think about the son here in verses 12, 13, 14. He knows the wealth and the lavish kindness of his father. So he asks for the inheritance. Dad gives it to him. A couple days later, he says, I'm taking everything that I've just been given and I'm going somewhere else. And he goes somewhere else and he blows it all, probably has a great time doing it. And then he wakes up one day and realizes that he's homeless and penniless, that he's fatherless, that he's foodless, that he's friendless, and he needs help. Takes up employment, that's not good enough. Longs for the food that he's feeding to these pigs. And again, don't overstretch it. It's not to say that living a life of sin is always going to land a person in that exact same circumstance, but it is to say that sometimes we willingly and joyfully run from the goodness of God until we look around and realize that sin has taken far more from us than it ever could have given to us, that it's taken far more from us than we ever could have imagined that it would, and there's only one hope, that God would be merciful. That's it. And that's where the son finds himself. Hungry, broke, covered in his own shame, smelling like pigs. He's got to walk back to dad and just pray that dad's merciful. Melody and I don't have children, so sometimes you get dog illustrations, but we don't even still have a dog, so you're getting old dog illustrations at this point. 
One summer, um, our elderly husky German shepherd mix got out. She got out because we put her in the backyard and the side gate was open and we actually left and didn't realize that we had put her back there. Miscommunication. And so we get home, the gate's open, and the dog is gone. She doesn't really like heat. She's a husky. It was really hot. It was in July. Um, And so we start to panic. We're, you know, searching for where she might be. We put a thing on social media. We call animal control to let them know that our dog is lost. Hours pass by until finally we get a call from animal control. And they say, hey, great news. We've got your dog. She was in a creek, just having the time of her life, like, playing in the water, probably trying to cool off. Well, she got to a point where the bank was too steep and she couldn't climb out. She was whining in the creek and someone in a house heard her, went out, got her from the creek and called animal control. And they say, don't worry, we're bringing her to you. And so I go out and I sit in the driveway just waiting for Kira to be brought home. And around the corner comes this truck with its lights on that I realize is like the puppy paddy wagon, right? It's got like the kennels in the back. And I'm thinking, ah, they threw her in jail. But that's fine. At least she's coming back home. And as the truck gets closer, I realize they didn't throw her in jail. She's riding shotgun. And she's got her head out the window with like her tongue flopping out of her mouth. She's having the time of her life right now. And they pull the car up, and I, I, the truck, and I go walking down there, and the animal control woman comes around and opens the door and gets Kira out. From what I could see, of her head kind of poking up there in the window. She looked totally fine. Well, she gets out and there's like a distinct line of mud halfway down her entire body where she'd been playing in the creek, right? And she's covered in mud. Like we can't let her into the house. We're gonna have to hose her off and then get her into the house and give her a bath. And I'm standing there looking at my dog who's wagging her tail, like looking at me like nothing has gone wrong. And I'm thinking to myself, this dog is messy and disgusting looking and I could not be happier to have her back. That's the younger son. Smelling like pigs, broke, having lived recklessly. His older brother says later that he blew his money on prostitutes. He comes walking back and dad runs out to see him, full of mercy. And it is a gracious act for God in the middle of our rebellion against him to run to us with saving mercy. And what does dad do? Son launches in to his pre-planned apology. He doesn't even get to finish it. He doesn't even get to the part where he says, just hire me like one of your workers. And dad says, bring me the robe and the ring and the sandals and the fattened calf. Slaughter it. We're gonna celebrate. No chiding, no demand for repayment. Grace and mercy just lavished upon the son. And then there's a party. Step back with me, kind of pull the threads together. Heaven rejoices when God graciously saves lost sinners. There are multiple ways to be lost. You could be knowingly lost, unknowingly lost. You could be willingly lost. And there's only one way to be saved. And that way is God. In the parables, that's the shepherd, the woman, the father. There's only one reason why we're found, and that is God is gracious to seek and to save. 
And there's only one response to us being found, and that response is celebration. And zoom out a little bit more and think about the audience that's present there. Some tax collectors and sinners who want to hear more from Jesus. There are some scribes and some Pharisees who have contempt for Jesus and the fact that he would associate with sinners. And imagine the way this lands for them. These tax collectors and sinners hear these parables, and they would obviously be thinking, I can be found. The society rejects me, they despise me, they think I'm disgusting, yet here is this man who is saying he would delight in saving me and rejoice, that heaven would rejoice when I am found. And then there are these scribes and these Pharisees, and they're listening to this, and they're thinking, ugh, how disgusting is that? There's no way God would let something like that into his presence. And there's more to the message to both of these groups, which we'll look at next week. But the main point is that God saves and he does not do so begrudgingly. Jesus is looking at this assembled crowd and letting them know that there is good news in the gospel. God delights and heaven rejoices in the saving of lost people. Specifically, in the context, God delights and heaven rejoices in the saving of lost people like you tax collectors and sinners, and scribes and Pharisees. Heaven rejoices in that. God saves and he does so joyfully. And then he and heaven celebrate the glory of his grace and the goodness of his saving. And if the image of the shepherd and the woman and the father in Luke chapter 15 aren't enough for us today to really wrap our minds around the truth of that, God has given us one more great image, and it's the image of the cross. It's at the cross where Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out so that every knowingly, unknowingly, and even willingly lost sinner might be found by the grace of God. We get that picture in the Son of God come to save. And think big picture about his life. What happened When the son arrived on earth, come to seek and save, angels rejoiced in a field nearby. What happened at Jesus's, after Jesus's death and his burial, at his resurrection? Well, some people went to the tomb to find out if Jesus was still there and an angel was there and said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen, exclamation point, celebration. And what's gonna happen at the end of all things? You want a profitable exercise for later this afternoon? The chiefs don't play till three. You got plenty of time. Read Revelation 19 and note the exclamation points. Revelation 19 is the picture of the feast of the Lamb, where God's people are all brought in and there are exclamation points everywhere. Hallelujah! The Lamb saves. We're invited to that feast. Jesus comes to save, to collect his sheep, retrieve his coins, welcome his children, and the party is on in heaven. And communion offers us an invitation to partake in the celebration here and now. Get a little foretaste of it. And so I want to invite you to take your communion cup there. And I want to call you back to what I asked you to keep in mind. If you have been saved, by the gracious, seeking, finding, saving work of God. You've placed your faith in Christ. You've been forgiven of your sin. I wanna invite you to take communion with us this morning. And I wanna do so by asking you to look at those elements and consider the following. 
Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out so that the glory of God might be celebrated in the saving of his people. And as those who have been saved, we take communion as a solemn event because it forces us to reconcile with the reality of our sin and the cost to the Son of God in order for us to be forgiven. But we also take it as a joyous act because it reminds us that when God saved us, heaven rejoiced at his glory and in his grace in doing so. So we take communion. If you haven't been saved by the gracious, seeking, finding, saving work of God, you haven't placed your faith in Christ and been forgiven of your sin, I want to invite you to something different, and that is don't don't take this. This meal is for the people of God to get a foretaste of what eternity with God is going to be like. And if you've not ever been saved, that's okay. I just want to invite you to something a little bit different this morning. I want to invite you to a reflection of whether or not you know you're lost. Maybe you do. You're lost and you've been trying to figure out what happens next. I'll tell you what happens next. The shepherd comes to find you, picks you up, carries you for the rest of life, and then ushers you into eternity. Maybe you're lost and you're feeling this morning like, I didn't know I was lost, but my eyes are being opened to that for the very first time. I want to share with you the good news of the fact that that's God alerting you to the fact that you're lost and presenting himself as the means by which you can be saved. Maybe you've been knowingly, willingly, happily running away from God and you're feeling deep in your soul like you understand something of the prodigal's emptiness. I want to share with you the good news that the Father is running to you with mercy. And instead of taking communion with us, I wanna invite you into a conversation with someone that you came with or with someone on our staff whereby we can explain to you what it means to step into a relationship with a good, gracious, seeking and saving God. Now I wanna invite you in to the eruption that takes place in heaven as all of eternity rejoices in a God who saves Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to take those two elements. I want to offer a prayer this morning before we take those. This is from the Valley of Vision. If you have this book of collected prayers, um, the, the prayer title is Divine Mercies, if you want to mark that down. But would you pray this with me? O eternal God, yours is surpassing greatness, unspeakable goodness, superabundant grace, I can as soon count the sands of ocean's shore as number your favors toward me. I know but a part, but that part exceeds all praise. I thank you for your personal mercies, for a measure of health and preservation of body, for comforts of house and home, sufficiency of food and clothing, continuance of mental powers, my family, their mutual help and support, the delights of domestic harmony and peace. But oh, how I mourn my sin, ingratitude, and vileness, the days that add to my guilt, the scenes that witness my offending tongue. All things in heaven, earth, around, within, without condemn me. The sun which sees my misdeeds, the darkness which is light to you, the cruel accuser who justly charges me, 
the good angels who have been provoked to leave me, your countenance, which scans my secret sins, your righteous law, your holy word, all write dark things about me. I deny them not. I frame no excuse, but confess, Father, I have sinned. Yet I still live and fly repenting to your outstretched arms. You will not cast me off, for Jesus brings me near. You will not condemn me, for he died in my place. You will not mark my mountains of sin, for he has leveled them all, and his beauty covers my deformities. O oh my God, I bid farewell to sin by clinging to his cross, hiding in his wounds, sheltering in his side. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ broken for you, take and eat in remembrance of him. The blood of Christ poured out for you. Drink in remembrance of him. And now as we sort of close our service, I want to invite us, sisters and brothers in Christ, to join in the rejoicing that takes place in heaven because God graciously saves sinners. We're gonna sing. If you would stand up, let's sing praises because his mercy is more. Amen? Amen. Amen.